But if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And we're going to talk today, as the screen somewhat says, about perseverance in prayer. Perseverance in prayer. And let me give you this uh, silly, but I think helpful, illustration uh, to kind of lay the foundation of where we are going this morning. Yesterday, a beautiful warm day after lunch, uh, but me and Cody went and played golf yesterday morning. Uh, and let me just say this. If you have to wake up, walk outside, crank your truck, and then get your credit card and scrape ice off of your windshield, you're not going to have fun playing golf, okay? It's just too cold. It's too cold. But nevertheless, we went, we played, uh, and as we were standing there uh, waiting for the ice to melt off of the greens so we could start playing, loaded up in clothes, felt like a straight jacket, can't swing, uh, it hit me. Of course, thinking about today and thinking about this message, and it hit me that golf, this is a stretch here, but listen, golf is a lot like prayer, okay? Golf is a lot like prayer in this way, in this way. Um, the difference between me or any other average Joe, and to call myself an average Joe golfer is gracious, uh, but any average Joe golfer, the difference between us and a professional golfer I don't think is primarily skill level, right, or ability. Obviously, yes, they're going to hit better shots. They're going to be better at everything. They have a higher uh, level of skill. But I think the biggest difference between me and a professional golfer is that anybody can hit a good shot. I can hit a really good shot. But they can hit a good shot over and over and over and over and over again, right? Their worst misses are sometimes better than my best shots. They're the best thing, the thing that makes a pro golfer a pro, skill, yes, but mostly it is that they are consistent. Uh, and I think that is an easy illustration for our prayer lives. The difference between a dead prayer life and a vibrant and fruitful and God-honoring and God-centered and Holy Spirit-filled prayer life, it's not that you're better at it or you have some skill of prayer, but it's that you pray, that you're consistent with your prayers. You make it a habit. You are marked by spending time uh, with the Lord in communion with prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about today in this uh, parable of the persistent widow. And let me say that, that this is a parable. Uh, so there's a unique way for us to read this. And this parable falls in the context of Jesus discussing, as he often does, the kingdom of God with his disciples. He's explaining to them that, yes, the kingdom that you have waited for is here. You're looking at the king. The kingdom is here, and yet it is still to come in its fullness. And I think he is answering the question. He's ending out this series of teaching with this parable, and he is answering the question on everyone's mind in this point. Okay, the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is coming. How do we live in the middle? How do we live while we wait? And I think that's what this parable is answering for us today. So if you would, church family, if you are able, uh, would you take your copy of the Word of God and stand up with me so we can read together. <clears throat> this is Luke 18, starting verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 8 says this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And listen to this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this time uh, that we can humbly uh, come before you in dependence, knowing that you delight and you desire to show up over and over and over again. God, I thank you for that sweet time of worship. God, your presence was evident in this place. God, I pray that you would meet us again. God, meet us again, knowing that we come before you in holiness. God, not because of our own works, our own deeds, but because we are clothed and robed in the righteous robe of the blood of the Lamb. God, please meet us in these next few minutes. God, illuminate our eyes. Help us to see the beauty of your Son, Jesus, in this text. God, help us to leave this place with the knowledge that we serve a God who cares and who desires and delights in saying yes and giving good gifts to his sons and his daughters. And it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. You can grab a seat. So like any good Baptist sermon, I have three points today, uh, and I will walk you through those as we go. And if you can't see them on the screen, I will continually uh, repeat them. Number one, we should always pray. We should always pray. Uh, and there is no... Uh, fancy alliteration or anything in these texts or these points. I'm taking these directly uh, from the text. Verse 1 says this. And he told them a parable, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So point number one is we are to always pray. Always pray. One of the pastors uh, at the church that I was previously at would always say uh, something to us uh, in this effect. Uh, it's not verbatim, but something similar to this. He would say, I don't care that you read your Bible. I care how you read your Bible. Right? I don't care that you're reading your Bible. What I care is how you're doing it. Obviously, he cares that we read our Bible. He wasn't saying that we should never read our Bible. He was saying that there's a way to read our Bible that honestly is not helpful. And I think parables are one of those things, man, that we have to be careful with how we read. It's like going to the shooting range. And if you go to the shooting range or the driving range or anything, let's say you take your AR, you're shooting, whatever, and you're not shooting at a target, but you shoot a thousand rounds, are you getting any better doing that? No, you're not. You're not shooting at anything. You're just shooting for fun. Now, did you go to the range and spend a lot of time there and shoot a lot of bullets? Yes. But that doesn't mean you're doing it rightly. And the same thing is, is true with God's word. Can he meet you? A hundred percent. But I think there's something to be said about reading it rightly. And the parables are one of those genres in Scripture that we have to be careful uh, to read rightly. And the right reading of a parable, most often, is the simplest reading of the parable. 
The right reading of a parable is the simplest reading of the parable. What I mean is they are not allegorical. Every possible detail doesn't mean something, and there's not a thousand different meanings that we can walk away with from a parable. Generally, there's one big banner lesson. Here's the parable. Here's what it means. Now, do the characters and the details place parts in that and teach us other side things? Yes, but there's one banner lesson in a parable, and this parable is no different. Uh, And I think that only twice in the Gospels does Jesus just outright say, hey, this is what the parable means, right before he starts to teach it. And this is one of them. He says, again, verse 1, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always pray, not lose heart. What's the banner lesson? Persistence, perseverance in prayer. And the first side of this double-sided coin of perseverance is Jesus says that we should always pray. We should always pray. And he communicates this to his disciples and to us as his readers through the story of a widow and an unjust judge. These characters are, like I said, important to this story. The fact that Jesus chooses to use a widow and an unjust, unrighteous, ungodly judge It's no coincidence, it's not random that he chooses these characters for this parable. Right, if there's anyone who should not expect justice in this culture, if there's anyone who has nothing to offer and no political or cultural influence or pull, it's this nameless and defenseless widow. And conversely, if there's anyone who would not feel burdened in the slightest to bring about justice in this widow's life, It would have been this unjust judge who the text says fears neither God nor man. Basically, he's saying he has no reason to say yes to any of her requests. The widow has no reason at all to expect anything, and the judge has no reason at all to concede. Jesus chooses these characters to communicate that in this scenario, justice or the granting of her request was unlikely, was highly unlikely likely. And yet the one thing that this nameless and defenseless widow had going for her, right, in the midst of a culture that preys on widows, in the midst of a culture that widows would fall victim to the legal system, what's the one thing she has going for her? It's persistence. It's perseverance. It's continually coming before this judge and pleading her cause. The way the text reads, I don't speak Greek, but somebody who does speak Greek told me this, The way the text reads is that it leaves room that this widow was not just coming before the judge in the courthouse. It's almost as if she was following him around the town and walking behind him when he was going home, constantly pestering this judge. The one thing this widow had going for her was persistence. And her perseverance uh, eventually led to the godless judge, who again has no reason to say yes, led to the godless judge granting her request and relenting and giving her justice. And it's in this story that we find an outline of our own prayer life. Now let me be clear. We are not uh, the nameless, defenseless widow, and God is certainly uh, not the unjust, unrighteous judge who eventually just relents and says, fine, I'll answer their request. And we'll talk about that a little more later. But for now, there is a lesson to be learned in the parable, in the uh, widow's attitude. And her attitude is one of 
persistence, of continually bringing her requests before the judge, of us continually bringing our requests before the Lord. It's okay to pray the same thing over and over and over again. Sometimes these recurring prayers, when you sit down before the Lord and you say, God, blank, blank, and blank, if it's the same thing over and over and over again, sometimes that can be because of a lack of intimacy. Right? It's funny to hear uh, kids pray, Lord, please, would you bless this food, when they're like nowhere around any food. That's just because that's, that's what they know to say to God. That's what they've heard. Sometimes it can mean your prayer life is lacking intimacy. But most often, I think recurring conversations communicate the opposite. They communicate relationship. Right? Any of you in this room that I walk up with and have a recurring conversation with, that means, at least to some extent, I know you and you know me. You know who I don't talk about the same old things with over and over again? Strangers. But I know that every time I see Terry Barr, at some point in our conversation, we're going to talk about some cowboy boots because we like talking about it. And I promise I have jeans that they will fit under. I just don't wear them much. We're going to talk about some cowboy boots, right? And a lot of the men in this church, every time I see them killing fish, we don't kill fish, killing deer, catching fish. Killing deer and catching fish, which is funny. I had, this is beside the point. I had a student, Wednesday night, I wore a camouflage hat. Apparently, I don't look like the most outdoorsy guy. That's what they tell me. I wore a camo hat, and this student, country as ever, love him to death, he said, he goes, why are you wearing that, cow, that camouflage hat? I was like, dude, I, I, I mean, like, I like to fish. I hunt. I'm, I'm a pretty outdoorsy guy. And in all seriousness, he goes, really? <laughs> he said, you kind of, and I, to this day, don't know what he meant. He said, you kind of seem like one of those uh, hippie outdoorsmen. <laughs> I was like, what, what does that even mean, bro? What are you trying to say? What is Am I in tune with nature? Is that what you're saying? But that's beside the point. What I'm saying is recurring conversations have intimacy. Brian Rice, every time he talks to me, because we have the relationship that we have, he feels free to ask me for money every time we talk. <laughs> and I say, Brian, stop. And how'd you get my house? Leave me alone. But when we bring our requests before the Lord over and over and over again, it's not because we have nothing new to say. There's plenty to say. It's because this is what's on our heart, and we want to be persistent. We want to persevere in our prayer life. We want to say, God, this is on my mind. I know you hear me. I know you care. But I'm going to tell you anyways because you hear me and because you care. Recurring conversation is found in intimacy. This is a model uh, for persistence in prayer. But let me be clear uh, on a few things that perseverant prayer or persistent prayer is not. It is not. Perseverant prayer is not an attempt to pester God into answering. Perseverant prayer is not an attempt to win God over by the quantity of our words. God is not impressed by us heaping up words to him over and over again. Perseverant prayer is not because God is ignorant or uninformed or forgetful. He knows. Perseverant prayer is not an attempt to soften a hard-hearted God. Perseverant prayer, finally, is not a performance of fake zeal and fake holiness in hopes to impress God. He's not impressed by our continually coming before him. Uh, He sees through that veil very easily. One commentator would say this, we persevere in prayer, not because we have not yet gotten God's attention, but because we know he cares 
and he will hear us. If you've been reading our one-year Bible plan, you know, and I love this, all throughout Exodus, what do we learn about the Lord? That God sees, he hears, and he knows. And if there's anybody who had it bad, it was the Israelites at this point. But he sees, he hears, and he knows. He doesn't need your prayers to know what's going on in your life, but he delights in hearing them. We persevere in prayer because perseverance communicates faith. Perseverance communicates faith. To ask anyone anything one time means that they may be able to help you. They may be able to help you. But if I single one of you out and I ask you the same thing over and over and over again, I need help with this, and I single you out, that means I know, I know you can help me. I know you got it. Perseverant prayer communicates faith. And this is exactly what the widow is doing in this parable. She is pestering the judge because she knows the judge has the power to bring her the justice she is after. God honors the faith-filled prayers of his people. And I'd argue you can't be one uh, without the other. Your faith and your prayer life will rise and fall together. Your faith and your prayer life will rise and fall together. We just finished up our uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting. And to kick it off uh, in our staff meeting, Zach asked all of us as the staff uh, to take a day and instead of uh, praying primarily for the needs of uh, church members and things like that in our ministries, uh, to take the time and ask, Lord, what do you want to do in us over these next 21 days? Personally, what do I want to see? Who do I want to see Luke be at the end of the 21 days of prayer and fasting? What are a few markers that we want to look for? Uh, and it was awesome to hear those shared uh, around the room amongst our staff and uh, pray over each other for those things. And one of the things uh, that I did not share but one of the things I wrote in my journal that first day was, God, make me. God, I want to be a man of great faith. And I think that this was born out of our one-year Bible plan. Because as we're in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, it's impossible uh, to read very far without realizing that Jesus honors the faith of his people. Over and over again, Jesus would perform a miracle and say, go, be well, your faith has healed you. To hear Jesus say of me that he marvels at my faith. It's hard for anyone to imagine that God would marvel at somebody's faith, and yet it says he does in his word. God, make me like that. Give me great faith. Give me great faith. And I'll be honest. Uh, not much happened. Uh, I didn't feel any better. Uh, I wasn't, my halo was not any brighter. I hadn't seen it in years, to be totally honest, but... Halo was not any brighter. I didn't feel more faithful, uh, which faith is not seeing. So I guess that actually makes sense. But I didn't feel anything until uh, preparing this message. It's as if the Lord reminded me of that prayer. And he reminded me that, Luke, if you're going to be a man of great faith, if you're going to be a man of great faith, you have to be much in prayer. Those who display the greatest faith are those who are connected to the source. And prayer is where the power is. Prayer is where the power is. To have great faith is to be marked as a man or a woman of great prayer. So why should we always pray? Because perseverance in prayer communicates faith. And God honors the faith-filled prayers of his people.
which leads me to point number two. It says that we ought always to pray, and number two, not lose heart. We should not lose heart. Again, parables generally have one big lesson, uh, one banner teaching. And often that lesson is fleshed out through the story of the parable itself, uh, yes, but also through the characters and the details. And often, as you read parables, you'll notice that the, the greatest lesson comes through comparison, and it comes through contrast. So the lesson, the banner of this parable is persistence. It's perseverance in prayer. But the true hope, the true hope of this parable is found in the contrast and the comparison between the characters and us and God. In this story, the needy person is a defenseless and a nameless widow who has no hope of hearing the judge say yes. And the one that needs and the one she needs something from is an unrighteous and an unjust judge who has no reason to grant her request. We can learn from this widow that it was her persistence to ask that eventually brought her reward. It was her continual petition before this judge that brought her justice. But the hope for us in this parable, praise God, is not found in identifying with this widow. And God certainly does not identify with the unjust and unrighteous judge. We are not the nameless widow with no hope. And God is not an unjust judge with no regard for our needs. This is actually just the opposite. This parable falls into the category of how much more? How much more? If an unjust judge eventually relents and gives justice to someone who he has no regard for, church family, how much more? How much more will the loving and generous God delight in saying yes to his own sons and daughters? Right? If an evil father can give good gifts, how much more your heavenly father? How much more your heavenly father? How much more will he give good things to those who ask? Verse 6 and 7 say this. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? Or how much more justice will the Lord bring to his elect? Who cried to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Listen to this, church family. We ought to always pray. We ought to always pray because we know that he can. But we ought to not lose heart in prayer because we know that he is willing. Praise God. To know that he can is of no comfort if he's not also willing. Power is scary if it's not ruled and used wisely in the hands of a generous and a loving and a caring and compassionate and kind God. Power is only as helpful as the person who wields it. And praise God that he can and praise God that he's willing. Not only willing, he delights to say yes. To say yes. And I wonder how much our prayer lives would change for the better if we believe that the one that we're praying to was willing to answer. That he desired to say yes. What if we believe the truth of Psalm 84? The next verse after what Zach read this morning. The very next verse. That God withholds no good thing. That means if you ain't got it, it's not good. He withholds no good thing. I love this quote from Tim Keller. 
He says, in our prayers, we can trust that God will either give us what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. How good is that? That means God's either going to say, yes, or he's going to say, no, because I have something better in mind. Man, what a picture of the heart of our God. But I think Jesus includes this encouragement for us to not lose heart uh, because he knows, because he knows that we will be tempted to, that there will often be reason for us to lose heart. He knows that we are prone to do just that. We are prone to be discouraged and disheartened. When we don't see the fruit of our prayers on our timeline, we can be very tempted to give up. Uh, after D Now, we launched into a series uh, with the student ministry called Jesus Changes Everything. And basically what we're doing is walking through the Gospels uh, and all the miracles that Jesus performed, right? And I love this because uh, church background or not, most people know these miracles. You've heard the story of Jesus walking on water, water and wine, all these things. You know these things. And yet it's easy to read it and walk away with this, wow, Jesus is powerful, but I don't, I don't necessarily get it. Like, why did he do that? And why didn't he do this or that? Uh, and we've been walking through this to see what each miracle teaches us uh, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why did he turn water into wine? What's he trying to show us? That he's a good bartender? No, he's trying to teach us something in all these things. And just last week, or the last two weeks rather, we've preached through uh, the rape. Zach, I'm so sorry. Could you possibly give me a tissue right there? You are a saint and a scholar. Thank you. I make sure to blow my nose between every service because this happens every single time. But we're preaching through the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? Everybody knows this story. We love this story. We see the power of Jesus on full display. He calls him, Lazarus, come out, right? I can hear the baritone in his voice calling a dead man. Those bones come to life, right? We love it. And then he finishes off with, I am the resurrection and the life. Man, that's a Jesus moment, right? That's a Jesus moment. But often, what we find in this story is we can skip to the end because that's the good part, praise God. But we can miss the lessons uh, in the beginning of this story. What we learn about this story is that Jesus, at first reading, Jesus comes and raises Lazarus from the dead because Mary and Martha asked him to. But that's not what's happening. Mary and Martha did not ask Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. They asked Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. Lazarus was not dead when they called out for Jesus. They did not want resurrection. Mary and Martha did not ask Jesus for resurrection in this moment. They asked him to heal their brother, for he was just sick. He was sick. But the hard part about this story is that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill... He hears that Mary and Martha are heartbroken and they're crying out to him for help. But he doesn't rush to their side to help and heal Lazarus when he very well could have. He could have made it. He could have spoke from a distance. We've seen him do that. Just speak and people are raised. He could have healed him in the moment, but he didn't. The text actually said, which this is hard, the text said that he purposely stayed away. He purposely did not come and heal Lazarus. So the question is obviously, why? Why would Jesus do that? Right? Everything we know about heroes, a hero doesn't let somebody die when they know that they can help him. 
Why would Jesus not come and heal Lazarus at the cry of Mary and Martha? This passage made it clear. Praise God for John including these details. This passage made it clear over and over and over again that Jesus loved Mary and he loved Martha and he loved Lazarus. He makes it clear this is not some random family approaching him on the street, that he had an intimate relationship with this family. He knew them. To paint the picture, if there was anyone, anyone he had reason to heal, it was somebody from this family. He loved, he loved them. But for us to read that, and I can't even imagine for Mary and Martha, that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't feel very loving. Jesus, we need you. And then he says, no, let's stay here two more days. Let's stay here two more days. So why would he let someone die when he claims to love him and love his sisters? But thankfully, Jesus leaves nothing up to our imagination. He says clearly in this text, he says, this illness is for the glory of God. This illness is for the glory of God. Jesus makes it clear that the most loving thing that he could have done in this circumstance was not heal Lazarus but to let him die in order to display his glory. I love this quote from John Piper uh, on this text. He says, so what is love? Which is a question we have to ask as we read this story because apparently we have missed the mark with our definition. He says, what is love? What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not always healing. Man, and that's hard but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer of this text is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing, admiring, and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Love is doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy to help people see and be satisfied with the glory of God. And I tell that story to say this. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, the Lord says no. Sometimes the Lord says no. And I want to fully, fully stand on that that can be unbelievably discouraging. Man, that's hard to pray, especially when you think this is a good prayer. Why would he not restore this marriage or heal that person or do this or that? These are good prayers. I want to see my friends saved. Why has he not answered that? These are good prayers, Lord. Why have you not said yes yet? Sometimes, for whatever reason or for whatever season, the Lord says no. But here's the hope we can cling to, even in the midst of confusion and frustration and prayers that have gone unanswered for years. We can trust that the Lord never withholds what is best. He never withholds what is best. And sometimes what is best is for him to say yes to exactly what you're praying for. And quickly. And sometimes what is best is for him to say no for the sake of showing you more of his glory. Every no that he gives you 
is ultimately wrapped in more of himself. Jesus says we are to always pray because we have faith that he can and not lose heart because we have faith that praise his name. He is willing and he always gives us what is best. Point number three uh, as we close is will he find faith? Will he find faith? The very last verse as Jesus wraps up this section of teaching He says this, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus returns, will he find faith on earth? The answer to the question, will he find faith when he returns, depends on if he will find his people praying when he returns. Those of great faith, as we've said, are those who persist, who persevere in prayer. You want to be faithful, pray. Pray and pray and pray. So what I want to do is help us uh, in these next few minutes with just a few practical tips and encouragements uh, to see to it to the end that we, one, always pray, uh, and number two, that we do not lose heart. So if you're a note taker, uh, I'm sorry I don't have these on the screen Uh, These were last-minute additions, but if you're a note-taker, i got four things for you as we close that I think will serve us to always pray and not lose heart. Number one, to be much in prayer, we need to befriend silence. Befriend silence. To be much in prayer, we need to befriend silence. Silence. What I mean by that is if you're not comfortable sitting in quiet, and I don't mean that your life is quiet. Some of you have noisy and busy and full lives, and that's okay. Some of you got a lot of little kids running around. It's impossible to find a quiet moment. I'm not saying the world around you is quiet. If you can't sit in the quietness of your soul, I think prayer is going to be difficult. So I think that's where the Lord will meet you, is in the quiet, in the silence. If you are not the type of person uh, who can sit down and read a book, I don't mean you like to read, I don't mean you're good at reading, I don't mean that you'd rather do that than watch TV. I just mean if, for the sake uh, of silence, if you can't sit and consciously focus on one thing like that for an extended period of time, prayer is going to be hard. Right? If you're like me and you can't go five minutes without whipping that smartphone out and checking something as if nothing's changed, prayer is hard. We need to befriend silence. We need to befriend silence because rarely, sometimes throughout Scripture, we see the Lord thundering and his voice shaking the hills. But most often, the Lord uh, is not in the wind or the thunder or the lightning or the storm. Right? He's in the silence. He's in the whisper. God is rarely loud. And if you can't befriend silence, you're often going to miss out on what he's saying. So number one, befriend silence. Number two, reframe distractions. Re, nope, that's not right. Number two, normalize boredom. See, that was a distraction. I reframed it back to point two. Number two, normalize boredom. What I mean by that is prayer is often, let me give you a lot of grace here, prayer is often uneventful. And that's okay. And prayer is not the Super Bowl. It's not always going to be full of action. Prayer is most often uneventful. Now let me say this. 
Will the Lord often meet you in your prayers and you can feel his presence in a unique and an awesome way? Right? And there's a zeal and a passion there. And you know the Lord is hearing you and you are dwelling in the presence of the Most High. Yes and amen. But I believe most often prayer is uneventful. Prayer is uneventful. Number three, and I say that because I want you to be okay with that. If you expect prayer to always be eventful, when it's not, you'll stop praying. Prayer is uneventful and you have to be okay with that. Number three, we need to reframe distractions. Reframe distractions. As humans, uh, more grace here, you will be distracted. Uh, and it's one thing, it's one thing to get distracted watching TV uh, or playing with your kids or doing any of those things. It's one thing to get distracted with things like that. But man, when you step into prayer, you are entering into a war with the domain of darkness. Don't you think the enemy has a lot to gain to keep you distracted during your prayer? There's spiritual realities and implications at work when you are in prayer. So those things that come to your mind, it's not because you're bad at prayer. It's because you're doing war against the enemy. You should expect to be distracted. One, because of the spiritual battle you have just entered yourself into. And number two, because you're human. And there's grace there. One pastor says this, and I love this. He said, if I get distracted 100 times in 10 minutes of prayer, that's 100 opportunities for me to come back to Jesus. How good is that? Is that not the heart of God? Lord, I'm distracted. Right now, I'm going to refocus and come back to Jesus anew and afresh. You get distracted 100 times in 10 minutes of prayer, that's 100 opportunities for you to come back before the Lord. Don't be discouraged by your distractions. Reframe them. Use them as an opportunity to come before the Lord over and over again. And this last one, as we close, uh, Ron, would you come play for us, brother? This last one, as we close, is not so much a, a tangible tip, uh, but more so just an encouragement. Uh, and an encouragement for me, if this room was empty, I'd say it to myself over and over and over again. Number four, everyone is a beginner in prayer. Everyone is a beginner in prayer. And I'm not making that up. I didn't make that up to make myself feel better. I'm taking this from prayer warriors of the past centuries who would say that everyone is a beginner in prayer. Prayer is not a performance. Listen to me. You don't master prayer. Paul would say you labor at it. You don't master it. You labor at it. There's no such thing as people who are good at prayer and people who are bad at prayer. The only distinction is people who pray and people who don't. You want a vibrant prayer life? Pray. You want to see it die? Don't pray. I say all that to say don't be hard on yourself. Church family, as we close, uh, the closing question of today's text is one that me and you have to wrestle with in our own hearts and in our own minds and our own walks with Christ, which is this. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? And his question to his disciples implies that no, he won't unless he finds his people praying. Unless he finds his people praying. Right, we ought to always pray because he can. We ought to not lose heart in prayer because he is oh so willing. Will he find faith, church family? 
let's be faithful to pray. Would you stand? Let me pray for us, and then we will worship. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you what a gift that prayer even is, that we can come before a gracious and a generous and a loving God in confidence, in boldness. We can boldly approach your throne, not of condemnation, not of shame, but your throne of grace because we are covered in the blood of the Lamb. And God, I pray that every time we step into a moment of prayer, we would recognize that this is a holy moment. We are doing holy battle and we are covered by his blood and we are welcomed because of it. God, help us to see the beauty of Jesus. God, I pray for anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with Jesus, knowing, God, that in order to be heard by the God of the universe, you need to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone in this room that does not have that, that today would be the day of salvation. God, I thank you for this time. I pray and I believe that you are honored. Help us to worship now. Help us to do the work required. In your beautiful name I pray, amen.